Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Voices of Conscience from an Ethical Perspective. The Town Hall Forum originates from Westminster Presbyterian Church on the Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Gordon Stewart, Senior Minister here at Westminster and moderator of the Town Hall Forum. The co-sponsor for today's forum is the McKnight Foundation. Today's speaker, Mr. Juan Williams, is the fifth in this season's series on building a civil society. Mr. Williams grew up in Brooklyn, New York, graduated from, Harvard, from Haverford College, and for 20 years has served on the staff of the Washington Post as an editorial writer, columnist, and White House correspondent. One of the nation's foremost political analysts, Mr. Williams has appeared as a guest commentator for the National Public Radio, CNN's Crossfire, the Lair NewsHour, and ABC's Nightline. He is the author of the companion book to the acclaimed PBS series Eyes on the Prize, America's Civil Rights Years, 1954 to 1965. Last February, PBS aired a documentary scripted by Mr. Williams on the life of A. Philip Randolph, and he is currently under commission to write a biography of the late Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall. His insights into national issues have earned Mr. Williams the respect from conservatives and liberals alike. His writings appear in magazines that embrace a wide spectrum of political thought, including Ebony, Atlantic Monthly, Fortune, and the New Republic. Today, we invite him to focus our attention anew on issues of race relations in America. The recent resurgence in white supremacy groups and militia in alarming numbers across the land will not permit us the illusion that the struggle for civil rights is over. As Mr. Williams has said elsewhere, too many people, black and white, are happy with the idea that civil rights is history. It means they don't have to face what remains to be done. To help us face what does remain to be done, please welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Mr. Juan Williams, speaking on the topic, Eyes on the Prize, today. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here. It's a, truly an honor to be asked to participate in the Westminster Town Hall Forum. And thank you, Reverend Stewart, for that kind introduction. I appreciate it greatly. I really am thrilled to be here in late April because the weather is delightful. I, I brought my coat in fear that I would be frozen. And this morning when I came out of the hotel, Wendell Moore said to me, be sure to tell all your friends back in Washington that the weather here is in the 60s, and I promise that I will communicate that very important information. Actually, this, this winter, as I was traveling around, people would say to me all the time that they had never heard of such a bad winter back east, especially in Washington, where we seem to get dumped on with lots and lots of snow. And so people sort of, you know, in, out of friendliness and familiarity would say, how cold is it in Washington when you were last there? And I finally took to telling them that it was so cold that some of the politicians were walking around with their hands in their own pockets. <laughs> now, as Reverend Stewart mentioned, I'm the fifth in a series of speakers that you're having on this topic of pursuit of a civil society. And when we come to such a subject as a civil society and how it is that we can maintain civil discourse among people who are all too often pulled to polar ends in any discussion, particularly, I might add, in television, where I often, too often am, appear as, in caricature, as the representative of some position or point of view, it is, becomes, it seems to me, difficult to always understand every perspective that's available reminds me of a story of a husband and wife who come together late at night and the husband says, darling, I've been meaning to tell you, but I couldn't bring myself to do it, but 
I went to see two doctors today and they both say that I'll be dead by morning. There's nothing I can do. And she says to him, sweetheart, I am so sorry to hear that. What should we do? And he says, well, I guess we should try to enjoy these last few minutes together. Maybe we should call the kids. We should go and have some Chinese food, some ribs. We should make love. We should get out the old record player and listen to those songs that we liked so long ago. Maybe we could take a walk down by the river. And finally, she looks at him and says, you know, this is easy for you to say. You don't have to get up in the morning. <laughs> well, when it comes to, to civil society and perspectives thereof, I suppose we have many perspectives, and all, not all these perspectives might invite the notion that civil discourse is possible in a society that is increasingly polarized, separated, segregated, and even hostile to the idea of people coming together in search of common ground. Part of the difficulty I have found is that there is so much of what I would call purposeful or intentional forgetting that takes place in the American mind today. I was born in 1954, I'm just turned 42, and I have, in my own mind, so little, it seems to me, knowledge of real history, things that have happened in my lifetime. And yet, and yet, of course, this is a very rich moment in American history, 1996, a moment, a moment from which we can look back literally over a panorama of a century of history with regard to race relations. You can look back a hundred years ago and see Plessy v. Ferguson, that famous Supreme Court ruling that said that separate but equal could possibly be the law of the land in this United States. And then you would come forward from that just about 50 years to 1954 and you would see the Brown decision that famous court case that overturned the premise of Plessy and said separate but equal was unconstitutional and could not possibly be the law of this land. And then you would come forward from that point and you would see that now we are more than 30 years past the point of the passage of the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, the Great March in Washington. You come forward a little more and you see that we're now approaching 30 years since the death of Martin Luther King Jr. You come forward and you see that we're now about 20 years out from the time when the country was locked in bitter argument over busing and affirmative action in terms of the Bakke decision that reached to the Supreme Court. You come forward again and you understand the kind of changes that took place in this country during the 80s, terrific time when really the pressure came from Washington and from a conservative government, the Reagan administration, to pull back in terms of so many of the affirmative action efforts that the government had put in place in the 60s and even in the 70s, to say that it was time, as the Reagan administration said, for a colorblind society, one where people were not given any advantage on the basis of race, despite the fact that America had disadvantaged people quite purposely for most of the history of this country on just that basis, on the basis of skin color. So at this point, in 1996, we have, if you will, a very unique perch from which to look over that wide panorama of history. But it is telling, I do believe it is telling about this moment in history that so often people tend to forget, to neglect that history and instead get caught up in the moment. And I think this is particularly true of young people. I know that at the end of doing the book, Eyes on the Prize, I had occasion to look at some Census Bureau statistics. And it came as an altogether, as a surprise to me, to come to understand that most people in this country today were born after 1965. In fact, it's pretty much close to the fact that most were born after 1968. So what that means is that most people don't have a grasp of really what this country was like in the 1940s and 50s. Most people don't have an appreciation for the changes, for the progress we've made, and neither do they have an appreciation for how much farther down the road we have to go in terms of correcting the tremendous 
damage that was done to this society first by slavery and then by Jim Crow, the idea of legal segregation, government-enforced segregation of the races. I know that in talking with my own children sometimes, these things come home in a way that is unsettling. I remember trying to describe to my own children and to their friends, for instance, the story of Rosa Parks. And of course, the young people immediately say, oh, Dad, you know, we know that story. Rosa Parks was this nice old lady who was not given the opportunity to sit anywhere she wanted on the bus. Black people had to sit in the back, and she refused, and she got arrested. We know that story. And so one day I said to them, but I don't think you really know that story, because it's not as simple as it would seem. I think you need to know that when Rosa Parks wanted to get on a bus, it wasn't simply a matter of taking the dime out of her change purse and going up those front steps of the bus, but that for someone like Rosa Parks in 1954 and 55 in Montgomery, Alabama, she would have to not just go up those front steps and put the dime in the coin box, but then walk back down those front steps to the sidewalk, walk along the side of the bus until she got to the rear door and enter the bus through that rear door because that's where colored people entered the bus. They didn't enter through the front. And I said, you might not know it, but it wasn't simply a matter of Rosa Parks taking a seat behind whites on that bus, but that there was a sliding seating system so that as more white people came onto that bus, there were fewer and fewer seats available for black people. And you should know that in about a third of the buses, there was a final little section of seats that were separated from the rest of the bus by chicken coop wire. And that was called the black section on those buses, and those seats were reserved for blacks. And at this point, of course, the kids can't believe it. They think dad's making it up again. It just seems so unbelievable that that could have been the reality of life in any part of the United States not so long ago. It seems just too much for them. And then they get uncomfortable and, of course, want to change the conversation, go watch cartoons or baseball or something. It, at that point, it just becomes sort of unpleasant to have such a memory. My wife, though, sometimes helps because sometimes when we're driving around downtown in Washington, D.C., she points to an old department store, now closed, called Garfinkel's, and she says that when she was a little girl back in the 60s, she remembers that it was quite, quite an occasion when her mother thought that she was old enough to join her downtown for tea at Garfinkel's. And then I always pipe up and say, but you know, I remember when I was writing Eyes on the Prize and trying to create for the reader a feeling of what the capital was like during the period of the 64 and 65, the time when the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act was being passed. I remember reading through the old Washington Star and coming across an item about a boycott, a protest, being held at Garfinkel's and wondering what could that have been about. And then, after more research, coming to understand that black women and black men were allowed to shop at Garfinkel's, but they weren't allowed to try the clothes on. Black women could not try on a pair of shoes or a dress because the premise was that no white woman would want to buy a pair of shoes or a dress that had been worn by a black person. And again, I say to you, this was the mid-60s. This was the United States. In fact, this was the capital of the United States. And too often, the kids, again, say, gee whiz, can't we talk about something else? Turn up the music. Because it is unpleasant. It's an ugly memory. And so many would have us forget it. And I could go on in this vein because it seems to me that the forgetting, the forgetting is purposeful, it is intentional, and it acts to wipe away, wipe away, if you will, our understanding of who we are as Americans, our feeling, our feeling of some kind of moral obligation, responsibility to that history. Possibly the most powerful such story that I came across in doing Eyes on the Prize was going back and looking at the work of a psychologist, Dr. Kenneth Clark, who had traveled south during the 40s to try to judge the impact of segregation on little children, on little black children. And he was doing this as part of an effort to build a sociological case 
about the damage that was being done by segregation in this country. And Dr. Clark, as part of his research, used dolls. And he took these dolls and showed them black dolls and white dolls to these black children. And the black children, seeing the black dolls, said, oh my gosh, that black doll is dumb, that black doll is ugly, and in some cases, unbelievably, that black doll's a nigger like me. Now you can imagine as we sit here, the damage that was done to those children's self-esteem, to their idea of who they are and what they could be in America. And this was done to these children in the 1940s. And of course, Dr. Clark could not do research as a black man on white children at that time. But I don't doubt that if he had the opportunity to do such research, Dr. Clark would have found that the white children in those communities were being damaged as well, that they somehow believed that simply on the basis of being white, they were somehow better looking, they were somehow smarter, they somehow would have a better future simply because of their skin color. And that even as we sit here this afternoon, it wouldn't surprise me if the grandchildren and great-grandchildren of some of the people that Dr. Clark saw in that community so many years ago would have brought into this room with them so many of the attitudes that they may have picked up from their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents at home at the dinner table about race relations and about people of other races and that these attitudes infuse our understanding of this very moment in terms of race relations in America. But again, I say too often in the course of civil public discourse, people don't want to talk about these memories, that reality of that America way back when. It only comes out in some unpleasant moments when people tend to be a little sharp or feel that they are in a competitive situation and that maybe they were wrong, maybe they lost out on something. I've had this experience. I had this experience the other day in Boston where a young man called up on a radio show and he said to me, you know, Mr. Williams, I took the SATs and I scored very well and I have good grades and I'm getting in to some of the best colleges and universities in America. But I want you to know that out of my school, some of the blacks and Hispanics and women who have lesser scores and lesser grades are getting into the very same schools. And I wish you'd stop talking about all that old-time civil rights stuff about what happened to who way back when. He basically said, look, man, I didn't own any slaves. I don't even know that many black people. I don't know what you want out of me. But I think that what's going on today is reverse racism, and it's wrong. This talk of affirmative action and affirmative preference is wrong. And why don't you talk about that instead of talking about what happened way back when to somebody? Why don't you talk about that? And I said to him, look, the reality is that many schools, in fact, engage in some acts of affirmative action in terms of scholarship and admission. But I said, you seem to believe that America is a meritocracy. You seem to believe that it's always been the case that whomever scores the highest on the SATs automatically gained entrance to whatever school, the best schools in America. I said, you should know that's not the case. You should know that, in fact, the children of the alumni certainly are given preference in terms of admission. You should know that the children of rich alumni are certainly given heavy preference in terms of admission. You should realize that if you have an arm that can throw a football 75 yards accurately, you will be given preference in terms of admission. You should realize that student leaders, people who can play the flute or the violin, are given preference. Why? Because the people in the admissions office want a student body that can create a vibrant community. They want people who will bring something to the school so that your education goes on once you are outside of the classroom. It's even the case, I said, that if you come from Montana and Utah and you're applying to a school in Minnesota or Boston, I believe the admissions director is going to give you some preference because they want geographic diversity in that student body. But I said it's interesting to my mind that only when we come to the issue of race only when we come to the notion of racial diversity in the student body do you then raise your hand 
in large outrage and say, this is wrong, this is unfair, this shouldn't be done because this should be a meritocracy. I said, in fact, the meritocracy never existed. But I see this too in politics. I remember going through an airport and running into a woman in Chicago who said to me, you know, you're that hypocrite that I see on TV. I said, gee, you just met me. <laughs> but she said, you know, I see you condemn people for voting for people like David Duke and for voting for white candidates because they're white and for engaging in racist politics. She says, you know, but I never ever hear you say anything about black people who vote for a black candidate just because that black candidate is black. I said, well, it seems to me that I would condemn someone who was voting on a purely racial basis, but I said, I sense that you're talking about something specific, and she said she was talking about years ago when Harold Washington was the mayor of Chicago. And I said, well, it seems to me understandable that black people would have some racial pride about finally having access to the patronage and power that goes with holding the seat of power in a big city like that. And it would seem to me that the history of this country is one where black people have been disenfranchised, where various schemes have been employed, in fact, to take away the vote and the opportunity to hold office and to have your community benefit from the money and the power that comes with holding political office. And I said it would be understandable if people, given that situation, would rise up and say, we want to support another black person in this opportunity to hold political office. It seemed to make sense to me. She said, it might make sense to you, but then how would you criticize anybody who voted for David Duke for the same reason? And I said, I don't see the parallel. In fact, it seems to me that in the David Duke situation in Louisiana, you would have people continuing, continuing an oppressive pattern of voting on a whites-only basis that oppresses black people and other minorities in the country. Well, she didn't really want to hear that, and off she went in her direction, and I caught my plane. But again, we see this kind of bitterness coming out, bitterness that is absent any historical context or any historical message, any historical memory, and it makes the civil discourse all that more difficult. Maybe the most difficult conversation that I ever had on just this subject was with a woman in New York City, an elderly woman who said she had marched with Dr. King, she had participated in the civil rights movement, given money even to support the movement as young people went south in the summer of 64 to try to impact some of the horrors that were going on in the southern states. And she said, you know, I've been listening to what you've been talking about. She says, some of it's interesting, but I want to tell you my story. And she said that her story was that whenever she went downstairs to the mailbox in her apartment building in New York, she did so with fear. She said a group of young black men hung out right in front of her building, and they made her fearful. And she said when she had to get her social security check or when she had to go to the supermarket, she hated to have to walk by those young men because they would say things to her or they might bother her or ask her for money. And she said she had come to hate those young men come to hate the sight of their faces, come to hate the color of their skin, and why didn't I talk about the fact that black people were threatening white people and involved in so much of the crime that was deteriorating the quality of life in this country, why didn't I talk about that? And I said to her, you know, it seems to me that as much as you participated in the movement, as much as you gave of your own energy and money, it seems to me that you didn't pick up a key lesson from that historical period. You didn't bother to look for the idea that somehow maybe your problem wasn't related to you alone, that in fact, in fact, it's possible that other people share your feelings and share your ideas and share your sense that something needs to be done about a problem and not simply on a racial basis, but on a basis that would say we're all God's children and we all got a problem right here. Because I said to her, if you look around, the reality is that in most of the big cities in this country, the crime problem tends to be black on black. And it's elderly black people who take, I think, the brunt of this problem. Certainly young black people killing other young black people. In addition to which I said, it seems to me 
that if you wanted to deal with the issue in terms of your apartment building and those young men on the sidewalks, you could do it. If it's about the social security check, arrange for direct deposit. If it's about going to the grocery store, I bet that grocery store would give you someone to escort you to and from your door in order to maintain your business. But even more than that, if you wanted to organize the people in your building to get those young men away from the door, it was possible. If you wanted to speak to the political leaders in your community, the city council and others, it was possible. But instead, you have preferred, it seems to me, to make these young men who are really probably school dropouts, really just a bunch of punks, uneducated, don't have much of a future, kind of desperate people, you have made them into these larger-than-life figures who now dominate your mind, put fear in your heart, and probably leave you spending the afternoon listening to some demagogue on the radio telling you that no one is dealing with the crime problem in the big city. No one wants to tell these blacks off. Everybody's walking around fearful of political correctness. Instead of saying, I can deal with this problem, I know how to do so, and I don't have to do it on a racial basis. To my mind, those episodes where people tend to forget so conveniently speak time and again to us today as we look for a movement, a civil rights movement, that continues, that has been transformed. A movement that says to us today, this very day, that there is a need for your activism, there is a need for your energy, there is a need for you to pick up the mantle and continue the struggle. And the struggle is not about the back of the bus. The struggle is not about another piece of civil rights legislation. The struggle today tends to be about issues that have to do with America in the 90s as a society that is increasingly resegregated. We never got all that integrated, but we are increasingly resegregated nonetheless. It is a movement that would look to the quality of public schools, especially the public schools available to our poorer children and minority children, and see that those schools no longer offer a ladder up that can truly enable them to come to our best schools and compete and hope to have a successful quality of life in this country. It is about a society where so many children live in poverty. We are a society that has dealt in large part with the issue of poverty among the aged, but we have not dealt with poverty among children and especially among minority children. In fact, over half of all black children are now born in poverty in these United States. This is a society that is still struggling, it seems to me, to deal with health issues and health concerns, still struggling with class divisions that grow all the more apparent every day, still struggling, if you will, to come to terms with how we can speak to each other in some meaningful way. That's why as I come to you today to talk about a civil society, I'm reminded that people sometimes ask me, why did you call your book Eyes on the Prize? And I tell them it comes from an old gospel song that goes, Keep your eyes on the prize. Hold on, hold on. I know the one thing I did right was the day I started to fight. Hold on. And what I'm saying to all of you this afternoon is that you have to understand that you are part of this ongoing civil rights movement. It's not over. It goes on. In fact, it is more critically needed than ever. And part, and part of that need is that we all admit, admit, if you will, to that corporate memory to that understanding of why it is that we have a society that is so divided and why we need to take affirmative steps, each and every one of us, to help in the healing. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Williams. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from the Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. I am Gordon Stewart, moderator of the Town Hall Forum. Today's guest is Washington Post commentator Juan Williams, who has just spoken on the topic Eyes on the Prize today, a fresh look at racial issues as they present themselves to us in the 90s. 
While the ushers collect the questions from those who are here in the sanctuary, those of you who are listening on the radio may also call in a question for Mr. Williams by dialing area code 612-332-3421. 332-3421. Mr. Williams, if you would please return to the podium, we will begin with the questions. Recently on 60 Minutes, uh, Mike Wallace interviewed Minister Louis Farrakhan. Minister Farrakhan's appearance in light of the success of the Million Man March and the praise that he received following the Million Man March seems to indicate that he has become part of the mainstream of American culture. I think the recent trip puts that a bit in question and, and asks again whether he is considered to be within that mainstream. Uh, would you speak to, to uh, the importance of Minister Farrakhan and the role that he plays in this society on behalf of those who are at this point without voice other than him perhaps? Uh, and, and is he in fact, is the society and the culture elastic enough that it has embraced Louis Farrakhan? And what does that mean, if so? I think this is a society that is quite flexible and quite able to embrace Louis Farrakhan, even given Farrakhan's anti-Semitism, even given his ugly representations with regard to people who are not like him, even women. It is an incredible thing, but I think that we have to understand that American society does not have a spokesman for those who have been left out, for those who have been marginalized in this society, for those who cannot find a job or get a quality education for their children, for minority groups that continue to feel that there is a ceiling on their aspirations, on their hopes in this country. And of course, Louis Farrakhan steps into that void as a loud, strong, defiant black male figure someone who refuses to be cowed or told what to say, say that he is free to do so. And I think that many people in American society find that somewhat entertaining, find it altogether either maybe on the line between threatening and titillating, but certainly they identify him as someone to be watched. That's the way the larger society views him. In that context, let's let me mention that Mike Wallace had a famous interview over 30 years ago with Malcolm X. And at the time, he was criticized by many for giving Malcolm X such a forum, for putting him into the mainstream, if you will. In this context, I don't hear that kind of criticism for the interview with Farrakhan, and I don't think it would be justified. I think Farrakhan should be given his say. Everyone should be able to judge for themselves what it is that he is saying and make some understandable conclusion as to how they feel about this figure in society. But I tell you, from my perch as a journalist and as someone who's trying to do history, Farrakhan stands out as a sad symbol of a lack of leadership in this country, a lack of leadership that invites demagogues to stand into the void and raise their voices. Thank you. Would you please, one, one of the uh, members of the audience here asks, is there a prize for today's young African-American male? Is there any prize? I think this question, is there any prize, means is there any goal, is there anything that they can aspire to in American society? I think the answer is clearly yes. I don't have much doubt about the notion that young black men who aspire, who work hard, will find it possible to achieve great things in American society. Everyone from Colin Powell to Ron Brown and others, I think, stands as a model of that possibility. It's also the case that we live in a society where there are terrible hurdles that will be put in their way, too often on the basis of race, too often on the basis of people who think that the most negative stereotypes attach to black males in America. That is what I think we as a society have to deal with, but if I were speaking to my own son, I would say to him that he has to be cognizant of the realities of being a black male in this society, whether he is 
driving down the street and confronting a policeman, or dealing with a teacher in a classroom who somehow thinks that he may not be as gifted and talented as people who have white skin. That's just a reality of the part of life. But I would never say to my child, you can't achieve, you can't be great. In fact, I would say in many ways that at this point in American life, there has never been greater opportunity for young black people. Thank you. Would you please speak to the issue of how to educate poor children better in an age when our schools are resegregating? To my mind, what is going on with schools in this country is the great sin of our age. It is literally the case that we have written off a sector of the population to inadequate schools. And then we turn around and we point at these people and we say they have bad values or they are incorrigible, they are criminal, look at the way they live, isn't this terrible? Without understanding that for previous generations, those public schools represented an opportunity to climb into the middle class of American society, an opportunity to gain sufficient education so that you could marry and keep your family together in economic terms. It meant that you could hope for the next generation in your family to have an even better education. And we have pulled up that ladder by allowing the quality of our public schools to go down to the point that they are at in many big cities today. It is really a sin and a shame. Now, how do we deal with that? How do we begin to change that? I think it's a matter of will. I don't think it's a matter of money. In many big cities, we have enough money but we see that the demographics are such that the population shifts have occurred too often on a racial basis, to leave behind the most needy and the most troubled of our children in institutions that are altogether too weak. This is a tremendous social problem, and it is increasingly so on the basis of racial segregation that was mentioned in the question, because we see that now, even more than the segregation of black children, we have higher rates of segregation among Hispanic children in terms of their schooling education in this country. This is the great challenge. It would seem to me that in so many ways, this is the heart of what would constitute a modern civil rights effort. One person asks you to speak more about connecting the struggle for racial justice to the struggle for economic justice, full employment, a livable minimum wage, and ending discrimination in, in employment. I think that the heart and soul of so much of what I am trying to say, beginning with the education part, leads us to this notion that in terms of full employment, in terms of the opportunity to be trained, to gain the skills that would allow you to be employed and then to hold that job, we are talking about making whole communities that have been damaged, families that have been damaged by the absence of skills, training, and most of all, work that when we look at so many of the black communities in this country, we are looking at communities where over half of the working age people are unable to find employment. We are looking at communities that are damaged more and more by the low wages that they get as part of what is now called the working poor. And we see this argument going on in Washington now over the minimum wage, but we see also that people tend to turn away as if to say, that's not a key issue because it doesn't affect my community or myself. This is a very essential issue that speaks to all of us in terms of what we are saying about the morality of our society. Is it the case that we could truly turn our backs on somebody who gets up every day and goes to work and still, despite working 40 hours a day, 52 weeks a year, is only able to bring home $8,800? That, to me, is not right, it's not fair, not just, and even more so for those who can't find any work at all. This is a tremendous problem. I believe it begins with problems of education, but it persists throughout life for so many people, and it has had a devastating impact on our poor and minority communities. One person asks you to comment on your own view of uh, the voucher system and the effect that it uh, has and will have uh, on the education of the American public. I think vouchers, 
like magnet schools, like charter schools, are all plans that are being reviewed by people who say we've got to do something to try to reform public education in this country. And to that extent, I would applaud them. But the reality is that so many of these plans really work to take off the cream of what remains in the public schools and to say, well, we can take the best students and put them into this school, or we can abandon the public schools by making sure that lower income parents have these vouchers so that they can send their children to parochial and private schools as well because we don't believe that the public schools will ever be revived. And if you think about this then, if you think about the terms of this debate, it really comes down to, once again, writing off a share of the population saying public schools are no longer going to be a viable route for people to make their way into American society. We are willing to dismiss whole-scale, large groups of children as being unworthy of our interest and our investment. Again, I repeat, I think it's the sin and shame of our age. From an African-American female listening on the radio who identifies herself as an attorney, she asks, what are your feelings about Clarence Thomas's appointment to the court now? This is a telling question because I once wrote a column in support of Thomas's nomination to the court that stirred all sorts of trouble. People were very unhappy with me in the liberal community for having said what I said. And I guess today, when I look at what Thomas has stood for on the court, there are many instances, I think most, where I would have strong disagreement with his rulings and decisions. But I don't think it's the case that Thomas should not have had that seat on the court. To the contrary, I think that he's a very hardworking, thoughtful, in fact, I think he's probably one of the engines of ter in terms of argument over the future of black America in American society. Thomas, it seems to me, has been demonized left and right in this society unfairly. And I think that is the telling aspect of his story so far. In fact, I think he's just 47. He has many more years on the court where, in terms of his judicial rulings, he will come into full full being as, an, as, a, as a judge, but to this point, it is still the story of Thomas is the story of someone who thinks heretical thoughts in terms of the civil rights establishment, someone who has challenged so many of the ideas that we have in this society about how it is that government should relate to an oppressed population of black people. Thomas takes an almost a black nationalistic view that black people don't want the government to do anything but get out of the way. Thomas is an opponent of an affirmative action, while I'm a proponent of affirmative action. But it is interesting to me that Thomas bases his opposition to affirmative action on the notion that black people can achieve anything and everything if simply given a fair opportunity, that no preference need be given, especially if that preference might connote that somehow black people would be inferior and need additional help. I don't buy that argument, but I find it a real argument and appreciate that it's set forward in a true and lively way and allows me to respond to it. So if she's asking, am I pleased with Justice Thomas in terms of his decisions, I guess I'm not. But if she's asking, do I think Thomas deserves to sit on that court and to create arguments and to set forth his lively ideas, absolutely. One of the young people in the audience asks, what do you feel about the Million Man March? I thought the Million Man March was a wonderful thing. I think it was really a show of people coming together in a way trying to confound so many of the stereotypes that would invite the notion that black males could only come together for a basketball game or for some violent episode or gangland activity. That, I think that was totally positive. I would not, would not have been able to somehow lend my name to it or to participate in it because of Louis Farrakhan's presence. I think that Farrakhan, as a leader, is a tremendously flawed individual and one who does not invite discourse in a civil society, but one who polarizes conversation. I think he tends to invite people, especially black and white people, to retreat into their own boxes and to say, well, you don't understand, or you have a chip on your shoulder, or you're a racist, or you just don't get it instead of bringing people together. I think he's a polarizing force in the society, and to that extent, 
I think that many people had trouble accepting and even attending the Million Man March. It might have been two and three and eight and ten million if their leadership had been of a different caliber. Just to follow up on that, another person asks, what are your feelings on the Black Panther Party and their contribution to a civil society? Well, I think that the Black Panther Party really was a contribution not so much to a civil society but to an angry society growing out of the notion that people would take up arms to defend themselves, people who felt that they were being not only abused by the larger society in terms of racism, but specifically by police and by a power structure that was working against them at every turn. I don't think that guns and violence will ever be the answer to the racial problems of America. If every black person in America and even all the sympathizers who were Hispanic, Asian, white, and of every other color came together I think it would be an opportunity for the most horrific kind of military government action in response because I do believe that this is a law and order society and that the response would not be in any way hesitant or limited. So I don't think there's a real option or alternative if you're talking about trying to resolve racial issues in this society. Thank you. What can I do in my own small limited way person says, I've always felt as though it was a one-on-one -on -one proposition. I do my daily thing, but I feel more is required of me and of us all. Please help us to plan. I think that one of the difficulties of our age is that there is an invitation to think that politicians are all sort of slime balls, that individuals can make very little, if any, difference in such a large society, facing such a massive problem as race relations, that so many people tend to think of historical figures ranging from Dr. King to Malcolm X and Thurgood Marshall, whom I'm writing a book about right now, as larger-than-life figures, as demigods, if you will, and to think, I couldn't possibly fill those shoes. I couldn't possibly have the impact on history today that those people had in their day. But I want to tell you that from what I have been able to glean from my studies of history and from my journalism, it seems to me absolutely the case that each and every one of us has this power in this American society to have terrific influence and impact on the future. If only we believe that we can, and if only we understand where we are and who we are as we go about trying to create progressive social change. Now, in specific answer to her question or his question, I would say, given all that I've mentioned about the quality or poor quality of public education, I would say deal with people who are illiterate in this society, that that is a civil rights issue, to make certain that people have sufficient literacy to be able to get jobs, and once having jobs, then being able to express themselves in political terms and to support a family get involved with efforts to try to lift children out of lives filled with de despair and destitution, to say to those children, you do have a place in America, you are valued, and I'm willing to work with you as a big brother, as a mentor in the church community, to make sure that you understand how much you are loved and valued by this society. I would say that we have to work to make sure that the elderly understand that they have a place in this society as we have a larger and larger population of elderly. Really, it doesn't seem to me that there's any shortage of ways in which to express concern to get involved. It is much more an issue of the individual having an awareness of their own power to create this change and to make a tremendous impact on America today. Thank you. I'd like to, com like to combine this uh, one last question with, with a a more personal question in the little bit of time that we have left. We have about three minutes. One person in the audience asks, what made you decide to go into this field of work? What do you get out of it? How do you like your job? Uh, I'd like to uh, uh, take that and, and ask you the question, what, what out of your own, what in your own background most has influenced you to see the world the way you see it and to have the commitments that you have and to bring the message to us that you brought us today. This is the most difficult question in a way because it asks me to look inside and I at times 
have difficulty analyzing myself, but I would say a number of things happen without much planning. One is I tend to be terrifically curious, uh, and that's probably a good profession for a journalist, uh, a good attribute for a journalist to be a very curious person, one who wants to know how power works, how people get power, why it is that some streets get paved and others don't, why it is that some people have opportunities and others don't. I get to ask lots of questions and I enjoy it greatly. And it's also the case that given my education, I was educated by Quakers both in terms of high school and college. The Quakers tend to think that people should speak truth to power and to encourage this in their students. And I have an opportunity to speak truth to power and to really use so many forums, such as this one today, to have a voice in terms of the ongoing debate in our society. And I, I appreciate this invitation, but I appreciate that generally. It seems to me a real privilege. It's also the case that I am someone who really believes that in the one life that God has given us that we need to be quite engaged with the current society. And the society we live in is one that is very much media-driven. Much of the discussion, much of the political agenda, much of the even economic and social agenda in this country today is being influenced by the tremendous growth of media in the society and how media interprets America to Americans because we are in the midst, I think, of a great national identity crisis. And voices that are raised, images that are put forward, both on the TV screen and on the movie screen, in terms of our newspapers, our books, help us to understand who we are, help to restore that memory that I was talking about, and I would hope help us to move forward in some collective way where coalition building is possible, where it's possible to look at each other in the eye and to see that of God in each and every man, to respect people, to understand their struggle. To my mind, if it is possible to be an American storyteller in the 90s, you are in a privileged position. And so I enjoy my job greatly and really thank God that I am in what I consider to be a privileged position. However, if you want to give me a pay raise questioner, I'd be glad to take it. <laughs> Mr. Williams, we thank you. Thank you all very much. <laughs>